Walkers. Welcome to No Prize from God, Episode 7. I'm your host, Ryan J. Downey. No Prize from God features conversations with creative people about belief, unbelief, and everything between. My guest in this episode is Michelle T., author, poet, and literary arts organizer. Michelle is the author of five different memoirs, including The Passionate Mistakes and Intricate Corruption of One Girl in America, Valencia, now a film, Rent Girl, and How to Grow Up, which is currently in development with Amazon Studios. She's written novels, she's done young adult fantasy, she's won multiple literary awards, her writings appeared in Harper's, Cosmopolitan, The Believer, Marie Claire. She's been saluted and shouted out and praised by Elle, San Francisco Bay Guardian, the San Francisco Weekly. She covered Paris Fashion Week and the National Taxidermy Convention for The Believer. She wrote about childbirth for Harper's, sexual fluidity for Cosmopolitan, surviving abuse for BuzzFeed. Her newest book and the primary subject of our conversation is called Modern Tarot. Here's a little bit from the description from the publisher. Whether you're a committed seeker or a digital age skeptic, or perhaps a little bit of both, T's essential guide opens the power of tarot to you. Modern tarot doesn't require you to believe in the supernatural or narrowly focus on the tarot as a divination tool. T instead provides incisive descriptions of each of the 78 cards in the tarot system and introduces specially designed card-based rituals that can be used with any deck to guide you on a path toward radical growth and self-improvement. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't know much about tarot beyond what you've seen in TV and movies. Michelle and I are both Generation Xers. I grew up in the Midwest. She grew up in the Northeast. We were both into punk and goth and weird subcultures and all sorts of other stuff. It turned out we had a lot of cool things in common, even though we're, even though we're obviously coming from different points on the spiritual spectrum in terms of our beliefs and practices. I was really fascinated to learn about modern tarot from her and to hear about her background and her experience. And while we were at it, to shoot the shit about Alejandro Jodorowsky and David Lynch and Dune and the Lords of the New Church. So here it is, my conversation with author, poet, literary organizer, Michelle T. Stick around until the very, very, very end of the podcast. Yes, even after I give out all my social media handles and ask you once again to leave a review for the podcast in the iTunes store, because I'm going to play in full... A classic track from the Lords of the New Church, an amazing band from the 80s that Michelle and I talk about in this episode. This is No Prize from God. in Chelsea, Massachusetts, which is a little shithole in Massachusetts. It's like five minutes outside of Boston, but culturally it's very, very far from any kind of urban center. Um, it's, I mean, it's a very urban place. It's super urban, but it's just its own weird ecosystem of like when I was there, and I mean, I grew up there in the 80s and I haven't been there since the early 90s. You know, every place has changed in our country and even Chelsea's become gentrified since that time. But in the 80s, it was like a lot of really racist white people and a lot of immigrants, it was like a lot of people from Puerto Rico, a lot of people from Cambodia. That was like pretty much the two main ethnic groups, the three, the third being white people. And there were some African-American people, too. But it was a rough place. There was a lot of tension, a lot of bad vibes, um, a lot of drugs, stuff like that. I, Me and my sister were put into Catholic school. My mother 
is Catholic. She was raised Catholic. Um, her father is Irish Catholic mm. and her mother, my grandmother was Protestant, but she was like this weird guilty Protestant who like really believed that like the Catholics really had the right way. And so like she never practiced, like I don't even, I still don't even understand what it means to be Protestant. And my grandmother, who I was very close to was Protestant. She would come, come to Catholic mass with us and like not take the Eucharist and like sit shamefully in the back. We went to Catholic school largely to keep us out of public school since the public school was filled with people of color and or was a rough place to be. And so it was like that all of that sort of like racism sort of all mixed up with like a a true concern for our well-being. And we ended up at uh, Our Lady of the Assumption School, which in Chelsea was the French Catholic school. There was also uh, a Polish Catholic school and I think an Italian Catholic school. It's like just like these weird ethnic cults, you know, yeah. the way that like that like these small towns in Massachusetts, I think still are. So yeah, so I went to Catholic school. I didn't really like it. I liked I liked the myth about Mary. Like like I liked that like this idea that like Mary was chosen and she was so great that she got to have the baby Jesus. And so that doctrine, that story is that, you know, Jesus is going to come again. So you can only think, well, he's going to come again the same way. Some girl is going to be so awesome that she's going to get visited by an angel, what could be cooler, and get to have Jesus. And so I remember in second grade, I got a really bad mark on a test. And I had my career, my my long, you know, education career up to second grade had been pretty good. I was like a pretty good student. And I'd gotten this really bad grade. And I just was disappointed in myself. And I just remember thinking like, there's no way like it's over. I'm never going to get to be Mary. I'm never going to get to have the next baby Jesus. I did too poorly. I had, I threw the paper away in the bat in the basket in the bathroom. It wasn't like I lived in a family full of perfectionists, so um, I wouldn't have gotten in trouble. But I was like, really, and I guess I just gave up at that point because I've never been a perfectionist ever since, and I've definitely stopped striving. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But I loved these ideas. Like I loved the story of like Bernadette, see all these girls seeing visions. Like I loved that about Catholicism. I loved Saint Bernadette in the grotto, meditating, looking at a candle, trancing out, getting visited by Mary. You know, I loved those. The nun who taught me in first grade, Sister Cecilia, gave everyone for the holidays a little 45 of the Song of St. Bernadette, and I was obsessed with it. There was a child named Bernadette I heard the story long ago She saw the Queen of Heaven Kept the vision in her soul No one believed what she had seen No one believed what she heard That there were sorrows to be By the time I was in eighth grade, when I did not any longer believe in Catholicism, I still had to get confirmed because, you know, my whole education in this Catholic school was preparing me for this moment in eighth grade where you become a confirmed Catholic. And I was rebellious and I knew that it was bullshit, but... I just, I just didn't have it in me to go against my whole family. Like I tried to, my mother was like, oh, she's an atheist now. And it was, everyone was upset. And they're like, you have to do it. And I understood that it was kind of bullshit. Like it didn't even necessarily matter if I believed or not. I just had to go through with the ritual of it. And then yeah. it was cultural as much as it was, you know, religious. So um, I took the, the name Bernadette as my saint name. Oh, wow. I, I still dig St. Bernadette. I just think these, these women were mystics, you know? And I love that. I love the tradition of female mystics that are sort of embedded in Catholicism with uh, Serwana in Mexico. Yeah. You know, you were talking about the differences with Protestantism. It, that's been sort of chased out of Protestantism. Is that uh, the difference? You know, There's no mysticism. They got rid of the goddess. They got rid of Mary and all of the sort yeah. of. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say that, that that's a big part of the difference. And I'm sure, yeah. that, you know, a Protestant listening to this would, would find that too reductive. But I think that's a big part of it is it, it's without the. Uh, most Protestants pride themselves in doing away with the ritualism of uh, Catholicism, and they feel like it's it's much more pure that way because it's it's they wipe the absent. paganism out of it. Yeah, yeah. all the fun it's stuff. True. Catholicism has all the paganism that they yeah. let the pagans keep. You know, when they were 
you know, imposing Catholicism, imposing Christianity on pagans, and, and they would be like, okay, fine, you can have your your rose window at the front of the temple. You know, you can have your you yeah. have all of those things. Just you know, call it God, call it Jesus, and we're good. It's funny because uh, my dad, also Irish Catholic, he refers to himself as a recovering Catholic. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, and my mom uh, was coming from you know basically the same cultural identifiers, but from uh, Presbyterian Protestant uh, mm-hmm. side of things. And the Presbyterians have proven to be you know nowadays you know pretty progressive. Uh, re- cool. relative to churches in America um, mm-hmm. in terms of, uh, you know, being gay affirming and things like that, uh, social justice issues. That's but this cool. but this was, you know, but my mom was, was a practicing Presbyterian in like the 70s and 80s. So it wasn't, it, it definitely hadn't arrived there yet. But yeah, it's, it, it's interesting. Uh, like you said, I think uh, my dad's side of the family, the, the Irish Catholic thing is, is certainly more cultural and, and ethnic maybe than religious you know right or, or, or spiritual yeah i don't remember any conversations about uh, who our family was in those terms in any kind of context of like magic <laughs> you know what i mean like <laughs> it was just more well, sort of like from indiana like it was it, it was the same type of uh matter of fact kind of this is who and what we are regardless of whether anyone actually believes this stuff or practices any of it. Well, I really feel like the women in my family are witches, but they didn't necessarily have a framework to understand themselves in that way. My grandmother was really obsessed with like astrology and like she would sneak me, she she would take me into Boston and that was a big deal because again, people from Chelsea went into Boston rarely during those times. And she knew of this psychic tea room and she would have her tea leaves read by the psychic and like, it was like this taboo thing that we were doing. And she was like, don't talk about it to other people. It's not real. It's just for fun. It's not real. But she was like into it. I remember, I remember talking, I remember them having a, her and my mother having this conversation, this really intense conversation. I was really little and I was like, I don't understand why, why are we not allowed to like green carnations? What's wrong with green carnations? And they were like, no, reincarnation. You're not allowed to believe in reincarnation. And I was like, well, what is it? And then I was like, what a great idea. And of course, they were dying to believe in reincarnation, right? Or at least entertain the concept. My yeah. grandmother also had one of those. They, I think as they were more popular maybe in the 30s and 40s. But she had one of those lucky number books. Some of them are still in, in print. And they ascribe a number to any kind of thing you could dream about. So you have a dream about a dolphin. You look up dolphin. And, there's, and it'll say a little bit like, oh, a dolphin means this. But it'll also have a number. And then you play the number in the lotto. Those are your lucky numbers. So, so it's like this sort of like working class magic. Magic. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So she had this book. I think my mother still has it and it's exploded. The cover's been gone for decades and she made all little notations in it when she had those dreams. She was just like a spooky lady and my mother is as well and my sister. And, you know, once I got into um, high school, started exploring, you know, witchcraft and paganism and casting spells and all of that stuff. You know, obviously talking about uh, your family and, and those, uh, you know, somewhat forbidden trips into Boston and then all that sort of stuff is very cool. Where did where else did you start drawing from in terms of uh, these bigger questions? And, and uh, you know, what was what were your other pathways of discovery and figuring out things for yourself? First and foremost, music. Definitely. I feel really lucky that I am. Um, kind of came of age at the same time MTV first started when they were actually playing videos and they were actually playing obscure videos, a variety of different kind of music. They weren't just playing like what was popular. Yeah. That's how I learned well, about it. Well, and there were so few videos that at one yeah. point they were like, we just got to play any video. <laughs> you know, cause we not play this people Lords weren't making church them. video. We just don't have yeah. anything else. Yeah. So I was really into the Lords of the new church. I mean, I thought they were so sexy and I loved their music and I loved that they were thinking about things and had this like strong point of view against religion and religion being, you know, just a tool that kind of was used to oppress people and keep them from achieving full liberation in their lives and stuff like that. Um, So I really, and they were so cynical and dark and I liked that too, because it just Mm -hmm. was like a kind of a cool stance to take, you know? And at the same time I was waking up uh, to, you know, the, the fact that I didn't believe in, Catholicism and all this other stuff, I was also waking up a little bit more to the world. And so I was having this sort of first tier awakening kind of at the same time. And so I really loved that, like, they were talking about how there's no justice and that the church is bullshit. And I I just really liked them. And then from there, I just became interested. I mean, living in, in Massachusetts, you are 
sort of in the shadow of, you know, the the witch burnings all the time and part of the history that you learn about, um, you know, you go on field trips to Salem. And so, and then when you, and then you realize when, as you learn it, that there is actually still witches and that there's a huge witch community in Salem and elsewhere, but really in Salem. And so I started just understanding that, that there were witches were real and magic was real and going into bookstores, you could find spell books. There were like witchcraft stores that you could go to and, and get, herbs and you know candles and and incense and things like that and I loved it it really captured my imagination it really just kind of synced up with my intuition I I think that it was like that part of me that really liked the saints and this idea of these women who had access to seeing what was a little bit beyond our world I, I maybe didn't believe in Catholicism or that structure but I did believe that there was something else you know, and and I liked I liked the framework of paganism, um, and or witchery or whatever you want to call it. I started reading tarot cards. I found my people outside of Chelsea. I started sneaking into Boston and found other goth kids in the '80s from other areas who were also sneaking into Boston to find their people. We all found each other. It was kind of a miracle when you think about it. There wasn't, you know, any media for us saying go to Copley Square and meet other kids like you. We yeah. just sort of. I remember me and my best friend from, I went to a Catholic school for one more year after eighth grade. I went to one year of Catholic high school, this horrible all-girl Catholic high school I got kicked out of. And me and my best friend there, we were like the troublemakers because we were just ourselves and we were a disruption just by existing to the kind of more violent <laughs> classmates <laughs> that we had that wanted to beat us up for looking weird. Yeah, we, We'd snuck into Boston and we turned a corner in there in front of the Boston Public Library. It's like, what? Skaters, punks, goths art kids like it just was like wow oh my god and um and we like found our people and we learned from each other and and everybody was sort of interested in these sort of things to one some degree or another you know but I definitely gravitated toward the kids who really wanted to play with tarot cards and have a seance <laughs> and like <laughs> we're really interested in the occult you know my my best friend Peter who I met um we met sleeping out for tickets to see rat or Billy Idol. Um, (laughs) yeah. And, um, we ended up, you know, he, he, we went to ended up going to psychic fairs, learning about psychic fairs. And so we would go and like hang out with psychics and talk about our past lives. And, you know, some of it I could tell was bullshit and some of it seemed kind of intriguing and I liked the idea of it. It was inspiring to me. It's interesting too. Uh, you know, yeah, some of those generational touchstones. I mean, uh, you know, I grew up in Indiana, um, which especially, yeah, like you said, everything's changed now and a lot of places look the same as everywhere else. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, pre-internet, pre-social media and all that sort of communication, uh, Indiana was very culturally isolated in a lot yeah. of ways. And yes, yeah, somehow you found your crowd and, yeah. and like the, the punk and hardcore scene uh, in the, uh, I would say the late eighties and early nineties in Indianapolis, all congregated on this one block in this one neighborhood. <laughs> and it was on any given night, you would find punks and skaters and skinheads and goth kids and whatever hanging out in front of, uh, it was a shop called Roses and Lollipops. It was a flower store on the corner <laughs> and it, you know, and it closed at like 6 PM or something. And it just happened to have this big parking lot and everyone would just be standing around with, with nothing to do, you know, yeah, and, and talking totally. about music and exchanging ideas. And, um, you know, and some kids were probably buying and selling drugs and then there were a bunch of straight edge kids and, yep. and, and yeah. And people that were getting turned on to, uh, progressive ideas, whether it was, you know, veganism, uh, whether it was, uh, stuff like anti-racist action, um, all these things were kind of bubbling, uh, and, and and it is it's it's almost magical, no pun intended, to, to think about how it all those elements were conjured and, and and drew themselves to each other without any encouragement or no. guidance from any anywhere else. You know, I know it's the craziest thing, and and I've you know I hear that just talking to other people like of our generation who were like freaks and misfits or punks or whatever, and and how all of these places have their had their little magnetic fields that drew everybody in. It's, yeah. it's the coolest thing. I love it. Uh, there was a band from Indianapolis, actually, who, that street was 62nd Street, and they actually had a song called Magnetic 62nd. <laughs> so, yeah. <laughs> there you go. Well yeah. said, Magnetic. That's <laughs> very cool. Mm-hmm. 
as you were um, discovering this stuff, because I think one of the things that that's fascinating to me, you know, about sort of, I guess, what you would call neo-paganism or some uh, modern magicians is mm-hmm. that, you know, a lot, a lot of people who are into that, you'll, you'll get talking to them and it's a lot of magic as allegory and as uh, I don't want to say theater in a way that sounds disparaging, but, uh-huh. but that it's, uh, you know, it's a lot of the artifice, like it's like, it's art, you know, and yeah. it's like sort of living, almost living in art. And I'm curious, yeah. I'm curious where you're coming from. You know, like you said, uh, your bullshit detector was probably turned on pretty early to people that are kind of going through the motions or conning you or doing some like simple psychology thing. Mm-hmm. Did you have experiences early on that also led you to believe that there was some reality to the stuff you were interested in, in terms of something beyond or something bigger than what we can see? Or I'm, I mean, I'm super curious about that. Yeah, I mean, I think it was a combo. I mean, I think I was very attracted to the artifice of it, for sure. I mean, I was goth, you know, I like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I like looked insane every day. My hair was like six feet tall and I was wearing like widow's weeds with like, if I could have found, if I could have found an Elizabethan collar, I would have like worn it, you know, <laughs> yeah. on the bus. So I I liked the sort the, the the ritual of it and and here's the thing I think about that like I think that there you know we get moved by art right like we're moved by by works of art as a species and I think that when you're doing magical ritual you're engaging that same kind of part of yourself mm. that is moved by art that's moved by theater you know and I think it's very possible that it's only that. And to me, that's enough because I am wired in a way. I am a person who is very receptive to that. Like I am really moved by it. I enjoy it. It makes me feel like I'm accessing a different part of my psyche. You know, it could just only be that, you know, I don't know. Is it more than that? I also think it could be more than that. Like I've definitely had lots of uncanny experiences in my life, not in any sort of organized way that points to a structure, but just enough to just make me feel like life is weird. You yeah. know, there's, yeah. there's more to it. I don't know. I mean, I, I mean, little things like, I don't know, like I remember when I was first starting to do magic, um, when I was a teenager, I was really into using, doing colors, color magic and, um, herbs and stuff like that. And I was, you know, I always wanted to do a love spell cause I always wanted a boyfriend. So I was doing <laughs> this love spell and I got a pink pouch and I was putting roses in the pink pouch and all this other stuff, make these little pouches. I'd tie them on my leather jacket and wear them around and it's like I got a boyfriend right away but he was gay and we were really good friends and like pink is like platonic love and so I just was (laughs) like oh no I I should have done like red love spell but like truthfully I wasn't ready for a red love spell because I didn't want to like have sex or anything like that I wasn't ready so it's like this funny thing where I was like a scared of the red the red bag I did took the pink bag I got a gay boyfriend I was pretty happy until I (laughs) realized that like all right he's not even gonna make out with me really so just like little things like that I mean working with the tarot consistently showed me that like I mean for me that the tarot works it tells stories that resonate with me that help me get a deeper insight to what's happening um that sort of show show me or affirm for me what I think is coming down the pike or, or, you know, will tell me that I'm just being scared or, or being alternately being too optimistic. So I've seen that work. Um, and so those kind of experiences, and then like further along from there, like I've seen ghosts and crazy shit like that. Um, I, so I know that there's things, you know, I don't know what it all means. I know that there are certain, um, traditions, I guess, you know, in our culture that appeal to me aesthetically and that's what I'm drawn towards. And so that's what I practice. In a very solo and sloppy and lazy way. <laughs> we, by no means like out there with a coven, like under the full moon, you know, like burning torches or anything, which isn't to say I wouldn't come if I was invited. But <laughs> I just, you know, I don't, I, I don't, I haven't really done that. So I'm a sober person and I got sober through 12 step recovery, which, you know, it's a spiritual program for yeah. better or worse, you know, and yeah, my, my dad did as well. So I'm, I'm oh, okay. very familiar yeah, and I have friends in recovery too. So, yeah. yeah. And so like, I've had my life really transformed by following that, that, um, you know, that pra- doing that practice and, and following those suggestions and stuff. And 
and really believing like, okay, they say, I mean, there's a lot of God talk in that, in that program. And that puts a lot uh, of people uh, off. Higher it, power as you understand it. Right. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's like, and, and there's like two, there's a good and bad with that. Like the, the good is that like, there really isn't sincerity to that. And so like, you know, my higher power, I've, I've jokingly said is Stevie Nicks. I don't know. I've said it so <laughs> often jokingly that I think it's actually, she's really become my higher power. like I can do what I want with that and have, have and have like the universe be my higher power or whatever you know looks whatever kind of symbolizes what I would like a higher power to look like but then again in the rooms like because Christianity can be the default for so reference point for so many people you know there is also like meetings that you go to where people are saying the our father and I get angry I'm like this is not a Christian program you know like why are we saying this Christian poem I'm going to start saying the freaking Hail Mary then when it's my turn to lead the, <laughs> as like, I'm not, I like do a big protest. I like, won't, won't say it, you know, or when people say amen after the serenity prayer, I'm like, I won't say it. So like pathetic, my uh, pathetic rebellions within the 12 step world. Uh, yeah. But I mean, I, I think it's good for there to be some emblems of, of adversarial combat in the, in yeah. those settings to a small degree, only if it's to, by example, make someone else in the room feel more for comfortable. Sure. Who might be there for the first time who's like, whoa, I started yeah. drinking to get away from all this. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know? Like, oh, you say that it's, you know, non-denominational or whatever, and then, whoa, here's the Our Father. Like, God, what could be more patriarchal and just, like, problematic? Well, and by the same turn, I would say that, uh, and, and maybe this is 12-step uh, propaganda, right? Because I know I've, I've heard this argument, too. But... The recovery programs and the substance abuse treatment, whatever you want to call it, that is devoid of any kind of spirituality or surrender to something bigger than yourself, mm -hmm. um, the statistics for those, they tend to not do nearly as well as what we know is the 12-step program yeah, that has that. It's true. 12-step program has the highest rate of success for people being able to stop using whatever they're trying to stop using and remain free from those substances. That said, even 12 step doesn't have a very high, I mean, it's kind right. of dismal. I mean, not most people who are alcoholics don't get sober. Most drug addicts don't get clean. But if you're trying to do that and you're just wanting to look at statistics, like 12 step is definitely the way to go. You know, I've read something recently that the same part of the brain, um, I'm like a sucker for all of these like you know, articles that pop up on the internet about like brain studies show, you oh, know, like brain scans show, like I love those things. Yeah. But so brain scans showed that, you know, there's part of, there's a part of your brain that lights up during like a religious experience. It's very similar to the part of your brain that lights up when you're high, mm. you know, also the same part of your brain that lights up when you're talking about yourself. And as a memoirist, <laughs> I was like, so mortified to hear that. I'm like, oh, I'm just getting high over here talking about myself for a couple decades. But you know, that made sense to me because you know, when, when I tried to quit on my own, I was really miserable and depressed and crazy and, and just really couldn't do it. And then when I followed this order that was set out, that is a spiritual path, you know, and was encouraged to pray and like figure out who I think my, you know, higher power is and make a little God box to turn all of my problems over to and decorate it with, you know, rhinestones and feathers and shit. Like <laughs> I loved all, like I got high off of that. Like I felt a, a relief from the stress of being without alcohol when I had used it for so long. And it, it makes sense, you know, people in AA call it a pink cloud. And I think there's, it sounds to me like there's like a, a like a neurological, mm. you know, basis of the pink cloud. Yeah. So. And, and, and this opens up something that is really fascinating to me because I'm the same way. I, I'll, I'll click on any article I come across that's about a new study about the brain and, yeah. and that's sort of how, how we react and engage with things. And I, I always uh, kind of the right word I'm, I'm very open to the idea that you know there's this duality where uh, causation right like chicken or egg like uh -huh. are we 
you know, do we feel like we're in love because it's just certain chemicals interacting or right. whatever? Or are those certain chemicals doing their dance because we're in love? You know what I mean? It's like yeah. are, are they, these things that we're seeing and when mapping the brain and stuff like that, are the, are those just reflections of what's something else that's powering it? You know, the, I mean, yeah. you know, the reason why, you know, we're not car batteries. Like you can't just, uh, you know, when someone dies, you don't just like plug it back in or put a new brain in or something and all of a sudden right. you're back on again. You know, I know that sounds uh, to my more uh, hardcore atheist minded friends like quote unquote magical thinking and uh. hocus pocus. Um, and, you know, I would argue that I think ultimately science and religion, for lack of a better word, don't have to be in conflict at all because I think science um, ends up proving uh, a lot of things that humankind has kind of inherently known at different points in our history, you know, like the, yeah. in some of these bigger things. I mean, for example, I, I, I always think about, you know, radio waves or bacteria or atoms or all of these things. Yeah. They, they, they were all present long before we we could see them or, or calculate them or measure them somehow or name them, you know, but it didn't mean that they weren't just present doing what they do, regardless of whether or not we felt that they were there. And, right. I, and I'm not saying that that, that you then make the next leap into, okay, so there's Sky Wizard who <laughs> listens to my thoughts and answers my wishes and has a magical place for me to go. And and that also isn't to say that there isn't some, that there aren't some traditions that have codified and, and, uh, you know, through various means, put ideas together that do make some sense of those things. Yeah, I, I just like, you know, and and I and I, I very much connect with what you said a little bit ago about kind of what works for you and and what may or may not be. I found myself, and and I I, I end up saying this in every one of these conversations so far. I'm so much more comfortable now in the doubt, you know, and all these uh -huh. years of of searching for certainty and trying to figure out exactly what it's all about and then get all the answers and um, know everything and just, you know, ass yeah. assimilate all the information. I find now that I'm, I'm so much more inspired within the margins, you know, and I, and I, as much as I connect with art that has a point of view, right. Mm -hmm. That point of view is, is really just something authentic uh, and passionate that's being said, whether it's through a movie or a book or a painting or music mm -hmm. or whatever. But by the same turn, I'm, it's usually wrapped up in some openness to interpretation, you know, where you can, you can walk away from like a Stanley Kubrick movie and, and talk for hours and hours with somebody about what right. the way one shot was set up might've meant, you know? Yeah. And I feel like we're really doing ourselves a disservice when we don't apply that same standard and framework to all these bigger questions about life and meaning and, and mysticism, you know, like if we're, yeah, I'm, I'm totally. not. I'm not anxious to get to one conclusion or another in terms of anything like super definitive about each and every little detail. And I found a framework to kind of explore things through that works for me. That you know exists somewhere in that Christian tradition, and I think a lot of that is is culture and heritage mm -hmm. and, and comfort. Um, but by the same turn, you know, it's a Christianity that's uh, Jesus overturning the money tables. You know, it's it's constantly in conflict and it's constantly the person sitting in the AA meeting that hears the Our Father and goes like, I'm not saying amen because people need to see. I mean, that to me is what the original story of Christ was all about, was that kind of constant questioning and, and searching and... You know. Yeah, I mean, if you want to look at the the story of Jesus and just kind of, if possible, remove the the like you know millennia of ba baggage around it, it's he seems like he was like a groovy mystic who had like, who was just like a radical. He was like a radical mystic, you know. I love the Catholic workers. I just went and volunteered at a soup kitchen um, months ago that was run by the Catholic workers. And I'm mean, like, you know, if I was raised with Catholic worker Catholics, I might still be Catholic because the right. vibe that I get there isn't one of like, Oh, I worship this guy. Cause he was so much better than me and I'm a flea. And one day he'll let me into his Holy castle. But it was like, this guy set a really cool example for how to be on the earth, which is a place with much suffering and how to help and be a good person. Guys are just out there feeding people, you know, like no judgment, no nothing. Just like you're hungry or some food. They seem pretty cool. In terms of human history and certainly the history of the Catholic Church, as much as this current pope uh, still seems to have a, a long way to go for a lot of us, um, <laughs> the idea that he's so progressive, right? It's like, well, yeah, he, he came from that Latin American Catholic tradition 
Um, and that's where we had liberation theology and that's where we had all these right. radicals, you know, even in the seventies and eighties in the activist community, it's where right. you see these, these images of nuns with rifles and, uh, the idea of, uh, you know, taking action to battle oppression, which I think is essential to what that stuff should really be about versus, um, what it's been, uh, commercialized and sanitized into. Um, so tell me about, uh, tarot cards because my my understanding probably doesn't go much deeper than you know what i've seen in tv and movies and uh, <laughs> which is like they're spooky and they will predict your death yeah exactly <laughs> yeah for some reason it's always it always winds up predicting your death always yeah, yeah. which yeah. i can tell you that i will never be able to do in a tarot reading um i mean you know there may be other people who can do that but i can't yeah. do um but but yeah what can you tell me about sort of its origins and and misconceptions and the important um, things about it and sort of and, and then kind of and I realize you have a whole book about this and you know well it's but, not about tarot history though mine's my book modern tarot is really like a, a user's manual for yeah. using tarot today but um historically what I know about it is that it, it is Italian in origin um and it went underground for a while it was used as a divination or used in magic and stuff um and then it went underground because of religious persecution. And so people would use them as pretenders to be playing cards with them. Mm. And that's how we got the playing cards. Playing oh. cards correspond exactly to the minor arcana of tarot cards. So there's like the suit, ace through 10 of cups, which corresponds to hearts. There's the suit, ace through 10 of you know, um, spades, which corresponds to swords. Um, so playing cards don't have the major arcanas, which are the archetypes, like the star, the devil, you know, the, the sun, the moon, all of that stuff. You can do a adequate tarot reading with just a, de a deck of playing cards. Wow. And even more fun, you can, and I have, do an adequate tarot reading with a deck of Uno cards, <laughs> which is a really <laughs> fun party trick to do. Yeah. Um, because there are um, numerical associations that are in play. So the numbers all sort of have their own vibe and then the suits have their own vibe. And so there's this idea that when you take, you know, like a, I don't know, like a six, which is this in, in this, I mean, I'm going all over the place right now, but the, I learned about the numbers, the numerical stuff through the, um, the tradition of the Kabbalah, the Western tradition of the Kabbalah mm. and the tree of life. Um, the, on the tree of life setting, there's numbered spheres and each sphere rules its own sort of area. So like five is like Gaborah and it rules like war and strife and, and six is Tifereth and it, and it rules beauty and love and success. So you use those numbers and then you match them with, you know, a six of wands is a six of, is a success in the sphere of the will, creativity, lust, desire, play, the things that are ruled by fire, you know, a five of cups is going to be a problem in the emotional realm. It's a conflict, it's disappointment, it's heartache, you know, it's loss and stuff like that. So that's how you do it. Um, and there's, there's lots of different traditions around it. I started learning, or the, there's lots of different tarot decks and each tarot deck kind of is its own mini tradition within the larger tradition of the tarot. Because when people create a tarot deck, they're bringing their own spin a little bit to those cards, they might follow it absolutely to the letter of the original deck. They might deviate a little bit. I started reading with the Rider Waite deck, which is probably the deck that you've seen on TV and movies. It's really like the classic tarot deck when you see like tarot card jewelry or, you know, mm -hmm. t-shirts and stuff like that, tote bags, it's usually that. And uh, it's a great starting deck because instead of the five of swords, just having five swords, it shows a scenario that is like you can see in the image that something bad is happening. So, you, you know, you can kind of read into what that means, you know, or you see something beautiful happening. So I that tends to be a lot of people's first starting deck. So I used that deck in Modern Tarot to put my own spin on what the cards mean. That's the deck I worked with. It seems to be the deck that a lot of other tarot decks, more modern tarot decks deviate from. So it more they more or less their pictures might be different, but the essence of like a six being a good card and a five being a challenging card remains the same. So, um, so yeah, I don't know how it works. Um, <laughs> I think that it's intention. I hmm. think that, you is know, there, is I there some mathematics involved maybe too, or it's like somehow there's, uh, formulas that are in play that you may not even be aware of as you're doing it. 
I believe that. One plus one equals two. Yeah. yeah, I believe that. Well, I definitely think math was engaged in the creation of the tarot for sure. Um, and I completely am willing to believe that there is a mathematical thing happening when you put those cards down. But I don't see that because I'm just not wired to see that. Me neither. Um, <laughs> I'm very, I'm very much left brain or whatever. You I know, think or, math yeah. is really magical. Right, right I'm really, yeah, yeah, I'm really attracted to these sort of Western um mysticism kind of occult societies that I think work with math a lot, you know, like the, the golden dawn and all of, you know, all of those yeah. people, the, the Rosicrucians, like, I don't know anything what they're about, but I'm very attracted to, to what they were talking about. I think that there was math involved. I mean, I know in the Kabbalah it's math, right? It's a lot of math. Yeah. In the and it's funny, you were talking about the tree of life and everything. And this is just my pop culture infested mind. But I think, I, I think, Oh, that's like the force tree that they've been integrating into star Wars recently. Uh, oh wow maybe it is <laughs> yeah it there's, sounds like that's i mean because star wars is all kinds of mythology and religion so, you know that's so cool yeah the tree yeah. of life is really great and it can it's it corresponds with the tarot it corresponds with um chakras it's really yeah. interesting you can kind of link these different um thoughts and modalities together when you're playing with tarot and you can link in astrology also yeah um the Aleister Crowley deck is a really great, the Toth deck that he does, he worked on, um, created with Lady Frida Harris. She did the art for it. That is a tarot deck that has, that the, um, the astrological associations are right on the cards. So mm -hmm. it's great, just more information to help and, you understand. And, there, and there's a tree that's a big part of Norse mythology too, right? I, yeah, there yeah. is. So it seems how the, all these things, I mean, there, there's certainly assimilation and, and uh, you know, history being written by the conqueror that happens with a lot of these traditions. But I would also yeah. argue that sometimes it's it's different. It's ideas that just force their way through to the surface, regardless like of a, what's being put like a cult, on it. Like a mass consciousness. Or yeah, mass something like that. Yeah, yeah, I like that idea a lot. Yeah, because there are similarities that, that kind of repeat themselves in different cultures, maybe with a little bit of a different style or a tweak, but there's some sort of core similarity so tarot is like it's an exchange of energy i think it's a lot about intention i feel like i could take a bunch of pencils and just be like this is going to be the good pencil this pencil means shit's fucked up this pencil means you know you need to meditate this pencil means give yourself a break and shuffle them and throw them and then read them because i'm deciding i'm intending to use them in that way and Ideally, the person I'm doing it with is also in agreement with me that 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 this, this is going to happen. These pencils are going to tell us what's going yeah. on, and there's an exchange of of, of uh, energy, and it creates this moment. And I don't, you know, I, I, at this point, I feel pretty comfortable with like not exactly knowing how it works. I just know yeah. that, you know, after I, I'm 46, I started reading cards when I was 15, so I've seen that that it's that it works, you know. And sometimes it's more stunning than other times, you know, sometimes people don't have a lot going on. So you don't get a very <laughs> big tarot reading because like, yeah, I don't know, not a lot's going yeah. on. But, um, you know, other times you get you do get a big tarot reading because a lot's going on. So I've seen I've seen all of that. Um, and so I believe in it um, from my experience. And and I'm comfortable with not exactly understanding how it works. But yeah, I mean, and that's certainly part of it. And I, I love what you said about the exchange of information. I think that that's really interesting because you know, there's that idea that uh, anytime something is observed, just the mere act of it being observed inevitably changes it. And, right. And I mean, so, that's in the fabric of science. I mean, that's happening right. at the atomic level in our bodies, right? So right. so if you have some like super skeptic sit down and go, all right, do a tarot reading for me. And and you know what I mean? And they're just like yeah. uh, determined to and guess what not happens? see anything in there. There's instances... I can't read them. Right. Because there's no, there's no exchange. Like you it. said. Yeah. Yeah. And I learned that from, from doing tarot readings. You know, I remember I had this girl, I wrote about this in, in my book that I had this um, girl come in and she was so sulky. She had such bad vibes. She like flung her $10 at me for her tarot reading. And I put the cards down and they just didn't make sense. And it's so weird because these stories all have pictures and I'm a storyteller. I'm a writer. I look at them and I can see a narrative come together. You know, it, it's not hard they're made to do that, you know, and for whatever reason, the, the pictures are down and I just can't make sense of them. And I said, I'm really sorry. I don't know why, but I can't, this doesn't make sense to me. I can't do it. I gave her her money back and she was like, I knew this was bullshit. Yeah. She was all vindicated and bitter. And I was like, wow, I think that you're, you're like, but if it was really bullshit, I would have figured out a way to keep your 10 bucks. Right? <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. Or what's the point of the bullshit? Yeah. Oh yeah. my gosh. Yeah, totally. <laughs> So yeah, it was funny. I was like, wow, I guess, 
I, you know, that just doesn't work. I did another, uh, I was, I, I got a gig once too, where I was, uh, it was a Halloween party for a tech company and I was like the terror, the fortune teller or whatever. Yeah. And I was into it. I was like, this will be really fun. Yeah. But then it ended up not being fun because it was just like, you know, a culture of total skeptics on such things, which is fine. You know, I don't need anybody to believe in it, but it just made my job hard that night because yeah. I couldn't really read anyone's cards. Like people would come in and be like with this real kind of prove it to me attitude. And I was like, I actually can't prove anything to you. I'm sorry. Yeah, like, I mean, or to put it in the, in the Catholic terms, imagine someone going into the confessional booth and being like, I don't believe in any of this shit. There's no God. Anyway. Yeah. How's this work? Or, you know, or what's this sacrament all about? It's like, yeah. you're definitely <laughs> not going to get anything out of it. Yeah. It's not going to, yeah, totally. you know, magically trick you into believing it. It's, yeah. It's not belief at that point if it is. I mean, if we all yeah. saw a sky wizard sitting in a throne in the sky, we'd be like, yep, there's the sky wizard and there'd be no <laughs> belief involved. There'd be no magic. You yeah. Know? I think it's trickier with something like tarot cards because we have this tangible thing in our hands. So there's this mm. like, okay, let me see it. But it's still you know, it's, it still belongs to that. It's still of that realm of belief and intuition and things we can't see, you know, it's just a tool to act, to, to access a little edge of that realm. Yeah. That's so well put the idea that it's a tool to access the edge of a certain other realms without, uh, that doesn't mean that you've broken down the wall and you're just like seeing everything on the other side. Yeah, know? totally. Uh, totally. Um, so yeah, I'm curious, you mentioned, uh, the, uh, and by the way, I love that idea. I've been rewatching The Sopranos recently, and I love the idea that they're sitting around playing cards all the time, and that it has this, <laughs> this deeper origin. Right? If they um, could only, if they only knew, they could really get some clues to what's coming. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> down the pike for them. No kidding. Um, but yeah, you mentioned uh, the kind of the intersection of tarot and astrology, and astrology is <laughs> another thing. You know, I, I certainly know, I guess, a little more about it than tarot, but in my experience when astrology comes up in conversation, here's what I always hear myself saying. Whenever I look up anything about my sign, it's a hundred percent spot on. It's like scarily oh. accurate. And I've had people in more recent years tell me, Oh, you got to look up your exact date of birth too. And I've done that just online or whatever. Uh -huh. And it's been very scarily accurate. But then yeah. I always hear myself backing away and going, yeah, but I don't like read my horoscope every day or anything. Like I'm not, you know, looking yeah. at my horoscope in the newspaper. And I don't know if that's my, my own boundary of how much. Or it could or be that little. a lot of horoscopes and newspapers are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They don't necessarily. Intentionally and vague. I, yeah. Yeah. And I'd say that as somebody who actually wrote um, sun sign astrology for newspapers for a while. And it's actually incredibly difficult. I mean, astrology is so much more vast than um, what the average person realizes. It's like, yes, you're you have, we say like, I'm an Aquarius. That means my son, which represents like supposedly my essence, my, my ego, whatever your ego is hopefully not your essence, I guess. Um, but you know, so it just means that my son is an Aquarius, but my, you know, I have a Leo rising, which really makes a huge difference on how I come off to people. Um, mm. like in our interaction right now, well, we're talking about really, you know, freaky things. So maybe I seem like an Aquarius, but in first interactions with people, I come off more as a Leo because your rising is how you initially appear to people. So yeah. anyway, your sun sign is very important, but it's only one thing that you have going on in your chart, you know? And so it's like the way that something, I, this is what I think about astrology. If something impacts me, the way I respond to it will be in large, but not all, in large part determined by my astrological makeup. But that is so much more than just my Aquarius sun. It also has to do with my Sagittarius moon, my Sagittarius Mars, my Venus Capricorn. You can't encapsulate that in four lines in a right, horoscope right. it's just being talking about one part of your pers yeah. personality like you're yeah. a scorpio and like the same you know events could occur to you my sister who's a scorpio one of my best friends is a scorpio my mom is a scorpio my, my mom-in-law is a scorpio you're all going to have slightly different you might find commonality but there's also going to be tweaks and some of those tweaks are nurture and have nothing to do with astrology right of course and then some of those are your other your astrological makeup is just it's like a little snowflake it's a fingerprint it's so much more than just your sun sign so because of that sun sign astrology is really tricky to write and in my experience um editor like i i wrote for this oh what was it, it was like a martha stewart magazine it was one of hers it was like organic living or something like that mm -hmm. they, they they had me doing a horoscope for a little while and it was so hard because I was doing my earnest damnedest to write an authentic real horoscope and they really wanted it to sound like 
you're going to meet someone this week in the, right. you, know, you know, like right. stick close to water. There's a merman waiting for you. You know, like they, wanted, <laughs> like, <laughs> they just wanted these kind of silly horoscopes. And yeah. sometimes, you know, you really do write a horoscope like that because it's what feels authentic. But most of the time you don't. And the funniest thing happened, like I, um, they were horrible to write for because they always wanted to edit me. And so I found myself being pushed into inauthenticity, like away from the authenticity I was really trying to do, which was very hard anyway. Um, I, I was and, in and, Paris. And, and that's true with a lot of, you know, as a journalist myself. Writing about anything, yeah. Yeah, it's not unique to astrology. But it was extra weird when they were like fact checking if I said that like <laughs> Mercury is going to make you feel this particular way. They were like, uh, we have to, I'm like, you can't fact check it. Like that's, <laughs> you can't fact check that I think Scorpios will be affected by Mercury this week. You know, like yeah. you just can't do it. But um, I went to Paris <laughs> for a while and Parisians, are so skeptical like they want none of it they want nothing to do like they're not having the occult arts at all and I had really bonded with this crew of queer kids that were so cool when they found out I was writing a horoscope they were so disappointed in me they were like, we <laughs> you were so great and smart yeah. and now we know like you're just a weirdo but um I did this thing I was so frustrated with my editors that I said okay why don't you guys write the horoscope this week I said what what should what are Aries going to do this month? And they were like, oh, and they just were being so silly. They're like, Aries is going to find love in the supermarket. And I was like, Aries, hit your farmer's market. There's love <laughs> for you near the rutabagas, you know. And they yeah. loved it. They loved it. Was like their favorite horoscope which, I ever turned in. Which they is the kind of thing you can it. say to literally anyone. <laughs> <laughs> and they could and and, and the and person reading it. I mean, that's an exchange that's going so far from the other direction. Because if they want to read that they're going to find love in the supermarket, they'll get up and go to the supermarket and, and they'll meet <laughs> right. someone. I mean, people who are able to do um, good sun sign astrology, uh, I, I'm so in awe of them. I think they're so cool because it's really, it's difficult and it, it, obviously it can be done. And it's really people who are their own bosses. They're not being edited in this funny way and they can kind of like go on a tangent and give it the depth and the focus that it might need, you know, like, you know, like Susan Miller or, um, Shani Nichols or the, the Oracle of Los Angeles, like all these people who deal with astrology in this way that, um, like mystic, mystic mama, there's a lot of places right now that are doing cool astrology that is actually helpful and deep. And, um, part of just this renaissance right now that we're having of the sort of occult arts in general. The cinephile in me has to ask about, uh, and of course, it's it's fine if you're not familiar, but um, Yodawarski, where does he oh. fit into all this? Because <laughs> he <laughs> does like tarot readings and stuff, right? Yeah, oh, yeah. He's yeah. such a mystic. I mean, you see that in his films, right? Yeah. And it's so cool that he's like trying to kind of be very, um, he's not just using symbols, but he's really trying to break it down. But to be honest, I haven't, I really, he, he did a, he did his own take on the Tarot of the Marseille. The Tarot of the Marseille is one of the oldest tarots. It's, I think, the second oldest right after the tarot um, de Sola, I think it's called. It's it was the first Italian tarot. But the Marseille is a really, really old tarot. And it's one of the ones that has um, the six of swords are six swords. You know, the, the four of cups are four cups. And they're very stylized. And they're, I find them very hard to read and not very inspiring because of that. But he did a, his own take on it. And he really played with color his colors are really weird they seem kind of perverse which makes sense you know um and i'm really interested in it and i'm look i want to it's going to be one of the next i collect tarot decks and i don't have that oh, one. oh wow nice yeah i have a tarot of the marseille that i got at a yard sale wow. um and i don't love it but i'm really interested in his and i'm interested in his book which i haven't read but santa sangra is one of my favorite movies oh yeah he's so tripping and I, i've only discovered him in, in recent years and my my entry point uh, was the documentary uh, Yodawarski's Dune about his whole uh, attempt to make a movie about Frank Herbert's Dune. And it was it really, really fascinating. If you haven't had a chance, I definitely recommend that documentary. I haven't it was... seen it. I've been put off because I have no interest in Dune. But do you think yeah. I would st I would still get something out of it? I think you would get something out of his okay. crazy, intense, steadfast passion to accomplish the impossible. And, pati like and, particu yeah. and particularly yeah. a story about uh, when it didn't work. Because I yeah. mean, he didn't make it, you know. And it was like yeah. something like... Uh, I mean, he had spent, I think, a third of the 
production budget in like pre-production you know and and people like hollywood producers were like reading the script and they're like this shooting script that you wrote this is like a 40-hour movie or something insane um but it has <laughs> Gosh, all you these... should get it on tv now it's, it's time for him it's time for yeah. Ross yeah, exactly. Netflix. Well, well, and he, well he did actually uh and i haven't read it but he did actually his storyboards and his script uh were adapted as graphic novels at some point so those oh, are cool. those are out there but yeah, and he was. Yeah, I will read Dune after all, and just before I die. Crazy stuff where he's yeah, yeah, right. Um, it's crazy stuff where he's like, you know, he wanted his like twelve year old son was going to be the lead, and but yeah, just from a historical cultural artifact point of view, it's fascinating too because he had uh, Pink Floyd was going to do the score for the movie. Oh wow! Uh, Salvador Dali and Orson Welles were both in the cast, and there's all kinds of crazy what? stories about yeah how he did that. Um. One of the really cool things to me, and this might might be cool to you as well, kind of coming, you know, as a goth kid and so on, uh, H.R. Geiger, um, he was uh, somewhere in kind of the lower rung of the hierarchy of artists <laughs> who were coming in doing all this concept art. Wow. And, um, I mean, this whole thing just was a colossal, huge disaster and failure and fell apart and all these people spent, you know... The, the huge swaths of their life working on it. So this guy who was the special effects supervisor, Dan O'Bannon, he did this like last ditch, like, um, I'm walking away. Screw Hollywood. I'm, I'll never make a movie. Um, and sitting on the couch with a friend uh, as his last ditch effort, he wrote a script for a movie called star beast and it got purchased by Fox and Ridley Scott decided to make it. And they said, we're going to change the name to alien. No and, way! And he, and he went and got his old pal H.R. Geiger that he worked on Dune with. That is create, so cool. You know, yeah. So it's like all these and all this stuff comes out in the documentary of, uh, you know, all these people that that you know kind of bring us full circle to what we were talking about the magnetic pole of different people. All these people yeah. that came together around Yodawarski to try to make Dune, and uh, you know how it didn't work. And uh, you know, D- David Lynch made a Dune movie, which Dune fans hate, but. Uh, he did, it, but uh, yeah, <laughs> it was only, it was the only David Lynch attempt to do anything like super Hollywood, and it was. Uh, is it called Dune? Yeah, it's, it's well, there is the Dune with Sting in it, right? Yeah, that's the one with Sting in it. That's, is that uh, David Lynch's? Yeah, and uh, the main. I the, didn't know that. And the main character is Kyle MacLachlan, uh, Agent Dale Cooper. He plays Paul Mwadib, the main guy in Dune. Oh my god! Yeah, and, this and, is like revisit Dune yeah, moment I'm having. Yes, like it's not just like a weird, like yeah. <laughs> wow. Okay, all right. There's a lot of magic right. in Dune. I mean, I love Comic yeah. Laughlin so much, and and I like David Lynch. Yeah, um, and he um as as legend has it, uh, he had lunch with George Lucas, David Lynch, about directing Return of the Jedi, and. Lucas pulled up, it was some fancy restaurant and Lucas pulled up in like a Ferrari or something ridiculous and Lynch was so put off. And it's funny because Lucas in his own right was definitely like a maverick DIY kind of punk filmmaker once upon a time. But this height of this sort of 80s excess, Lynch was apparently just really put off by that whole vibe and uh, Uh he, you know, he wasn't going to make Return of the Jedi, but then he ended up making a big budget sci-fi epic instead, which was Dune. And it was a huge failure. <laughs> was it? That's <laughs> it was like, funny. I didn't yeah. realize it was a huge failure. Yeah. I thought people liked it, but his, I guess people just love Dune. His fans like it. Dune, uh-huh. Dune fans don't because it's like you know, it's. I mean, Dune is like a whole bunch of books and like a big library yeah. of lifestyle for people that are like. It fanatics. is. I know, like and, and I, I guess that's why movie. I'm put off by it. Like, did you see? Have you did you see, see that show Togetherness? No, was that? Was it was that... a show. It was a show. Um, it only had two seasons. It was on. I don't know Showtime or HBO, one of those places, and um. Basically, it's like it's just about kind of like early late 30s, early 40s, like families living in L.A., like trying to have a life or whatever, kind of a 30 something sort of a deal. Mm-hmm. And um, one fa- one couple splits up and the guy just goes whole hog into doing like a puppet production of Dune. So it's like all he wants. There's this moment where they're like kind of coming, figuring out like what's wrong with our marriage. And he's like, all I really want, you know, she's like, if I had one day, I would you know do this beautiful thing with you. And he's like, if I had one day, I would just go and to Barnes and Noble sit in a chair and read Dune, you know, it just, I'm like, it's just like this emblem for this particular kind of like white, yeah. like guy. And I'm just like, I don't, like, I don't think it's my scene, but I, yeah. I must say I'm intrigued now that I know about, I've been getting more, intrigued. I realized that was uh, David Lynch. Yeah. Through, through the David Lynch part, the Yodawarski part. And, um, yeah. and I, I have a, a good friend I've become friends with in the last few years and she's a Dune fanatic Really, <laughs> and she's uh, probably the only person in my life that I know before today um who's into tarot and stuff like that too oh wow um, but yeah I'll, I'll i'll email you some info but um she's actually doing a dune book club right now uh which i wow. 
I should get in because I've never I've never read it either. Um, and, Gosh, I, and, I, and I, I just, had kind of that same vibe as you where I'm like, that's something for somebody who's not me. Yeah, totally. <laughs> you know, yeah. But, but yeah. That's but, my scene. There's only, you know, there's only so many books I'm going to read in this lifetime. And I just think Dune's yes. not going to be in the, on the shelf, you know, <laughs> and it might um, still be. We'll see. Well, uh, so you have the, uh, I guess, kind of land in the plane here. You have uh, the Modern Tarot book out. Um, yes. Where can people find you and find out more about you? And uh, Modern Tarot is available widely so most bookstores if you can go to your favorite bookstore they should have it it's it's pretty out there if they don't uh, they can order it for you you can order it online through your favorite way to get books online if you get to do it that way um but yeah it's out there and i'm on the internet i'm on facebook i'm on just michelle t i'm michelle t's with a z on instagram i'm t michelle on twitter i let people know when i'm doing readings and stuff like that well i would love to have you on again because i feel like there's still even so much more sure <laughs> this is so fun it's so fun talking to you yeah I'd, I'd love to come on again for sure well thanks a lot michelle i appreciate you're it. welcome and, uh, thank you to talking to you again yeah cool Once again, I want to say thanks a lot to author Michelle T. Also want to say thanks to our mutual friend Rich for helping to bump me up towards the top of Michelle's inbox. You can find me on Twitter at Ryan Downey, on Instagram at Superhero HQ. You can find No Prize From God on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. No Prize From God is part of the Pop Curse Podcast Network. Please, if you like what we're doing with the podcast, I ask you, and humble supplication to go to the iTunes store, give us a five-star rating, and write a nice little review. Because the more five-star ratings and the more reviews, the more visibility for the podcast, and the more people will discover it and get to participate and share in all these cool conversations we've been having and will continue to have into eternity. The Lords of the New Church were an English and American goth rock supergroup of sorts that was formed by guys from the Dead Boys, the Damned, Sham 69, and the Barracudas. Did I say supergroup of sorts? I mean, actual legitimate supergroup. Band was around from 1982 till 1989. There's been a couple of brief reunions in the 2000s here and there. Man, this band was incredible. Here's a song from the band's self-titled 1982 debut album. This is Open Your Eyes. As always, you guys have been great. And I've been Ryan J. Downey. Video games train the kids for war. I wish you can have fashion stores. Life orders done their job. This is filled with a rich delight. Assassination politics. Violence rules within our nation's midst. Well, ignorance is their power too. You only know what they want you to know. The television cannot lie. Controlling media is most great eyes. Nuclear politicians picture show. The act is lousy, but the blind don't know. They're gonna get you when you're on your own